This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney, and I am excited to be here with you guys as we kind of get back to current events this week and talk about something that's taking place in the country of Egypt. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, you might have seen a few headlines about this. A fairly notable event took place in the Egyptian criminal justice system as they recently had the or they at least completed, I should say, the trial in the case of a 2013 protest. It was a sit-in protest that was pro-Mohamed Morsi. If you remember at this time, the president, Mohamed Morsi, was ousted in 2013. And so this protest was kind of a pro-Morsi, pro-Muslim Brotherhood sit-in. Now, this particular court hearing was notable because of the sentence that came with. 75 of them were sentenced to death and another 47 to life in prison over this protest. So this is a pretty, pretty big deal. And part of the reason this was such a big deal was that this protest ultimately ended up turning into more of a riot. And it was broken up by security forces. There was this operation that took place, ended up leaving hundreds of people dead. And so this case was kind of a, a mass sentencing, which is not actually all that uncommon in in Egypt, but it had over 700 defendants and there were different charges that were levied ranging anywhere from like vandalism and damaging property all the way up to murder. And some of the notable people that were involved in here were some of the leaders of that outlawed Muslim Brotherhood, including the, the head of the Brotherhood, a man by the name of Muhammad Badi. Now, mass trials like this with dozens of death sentences is not all that uncommon in Egypt, at least it hasn't been in the last few years. Because at the time, the military, which was led by a man by the name of el-Sisi, removed this president. And the, the Brotherhood, which this president kind of hails from, has since been designated a terrorist group in the country and completely outlawed. But these kind of mass trials, mass sentencings, especially the death sentences, have really drawn a lot of criticism from human rights groups, both in Egypt and from afar, uh, and even groups like, say, Amnesty International came out against this kind of mass sentencing, describing it as, quote, disgraceful, uh, claiming Egyptian authorities should be ashamed and asking for a retrial, you know, impartial court, fair trial for all defendants individually you know, without necessarily jumping to the death penalty. But before we go a little too far into this specific instance, let's talk about Egypt in general. I imagine for most people, when you hear Egypt, you tend to think of a couple things. You either think of the relics and ancient pyramids, the Sphinx, the tombs and pharaohs, and all those sorts of archaeological digs. Or you think of the ancient empire that was ruled by the pharaohs uh, that took place during kind of biblical times. But Egypt, in more recent modern times, has played a pretty central role in Middle Eastern politics for many years. Now, obviously, kind of historically, you have this reputation in Egypt of the pharaohs. But Egypt has actually been traditionally ruled by kind of a royal family up until the 1950s. But since 1952, the country has actually had a president. For the first 50 years of this presidency, though, the president was actually chosen by the parliament. They chose a candidate for the president, and then the people would kind of vote yay or nay on whether or not they approved this particular candidate. 
2005, they kind of shifted this and we had like presidential elections. That was kind of more of a free and fair style where the people were voting for the president. And in that first presidential election in 2005, you had multiple candidates who were striving for the position of president. However, the elections, despite being kind of on the surface, or at least they claimed to be free and fair, they were really deemed to be neither. And in fact, the same president who had been appointed by parliament actually ever since the 1980s was elected all the way up until 2011. And that was a man by the name of Hosni Mubarak. You probably recognize that name. He was the president during the Arab Spring Revolution that took place in 2011. And so after this Egyptian revolution really took place in 2011, you had new presidential elections. It was the first time uh, in 2012 now that you had what you could really consider to be free and fair elections in all of Egypt's political history, which if you're familiar with Egyptian history at all, goes back a long, long way, thousands of years. And the first president to be elected after this was a Muslim Brotherhood government led by Mohamed Morsi. But there was kind of a big wave of discontent with this Muslim Brotherhood government. They saw it as autocratic in some cases. They were very wasteful, excessive. And so there was a military coup in 2013, and the general of the military announced that Morsi was being removed from office. And you had this new president, el-Sisi, who was then elected head of state in 2014. Now, in 2012, also, uh, Egypt adopted what's called a semi-presidential system. Uh, the president does not hold very extensive powers. The president can do a handful of things. Uh, they can dissolve the parliament, declare states of emergency, declare wars. But parliament has to approve any laws that come through first. So the president is somewhat limited here. You also have the ability of the parliament to impeach the president. And so in current times, the politics of Egypt is based on the concept of republicanism. Now, republicanism, by what I mean here, is not republican as in Republican versus Democrat, like we tend to think of here in the United States. Republicanism is a political ideology that's all about citizenship in a republic, under which the people hold the sovereignty. Many countries are republics. We tend to think of republics as being not monarchies. And this republicanism tradition is what we have here in the United States as well. But this current president, al-Sisi, was elected in May of 2014, about a year after Mohamed Morsi was removed in the coup. And especially at the time, it was thought that Sisi would bring stability to the country because the country was in a lot of upheaval. You'd had the revolution in 2011. You'd had uh, the Arab Spring, that's what I'm talking about. You also had the coup. And so you had multiple things taking place that really brought a lot of instability to the country. Now, there were some people who thought that al-Sisi was really no different from, say, Mubarak, that we're going to have more of an authoritarian regime. But he did manage to actually win a second, second four-year term just earlier this year in March. But I think the important thing to really note here is that despite having a president in place since the 1950s, there has been a lot of different changes that have taken place. Uh, the original constitution was abolished in that 52 revolution. In 1960, you had a new kind of interim constitution. 1970s, you had another constitution that was put into place to replace the, the interim one. Multiple constitutions have been suspended at various times. You had a 2012, there was a constitution that was approved, then got suspended in the military coup, and you had a brand new one put in place in 2014. So there has been a lot of instability here not only from like who's president, but even the way their government runs through things like constitutional rights and other types of laws and the type of voting system even that was put into place. And so Egypt is a country that's undergone a lot of upheaval over the last several years. 
Now that said, I should throw out here that the Parliament of Egypt is actually considered the oldest legislative chamber in all of Africa and the Middle East because it has been in place since the 1800s. So the parliament is, is kind of a unicameral, it means one house, like the House of Representatives, uh, that was founded in 1866, meets in Cairo, uh, and it has about almost 600 seats, I believe, in it. Now, there have been several forms of this parliament that's changed over time. Obviously, it's been going on since the 1860s, so that's a lot of time that you may see some changes. But, uh, oh, and I should also mention, too, that the parliament was dissolved temporarily in 2012, but it was brought back in 2015. So while there was a brief period of time recently where it didn't exist, the parliament has been around in some form or fashion since the 1860s. But that really leads us up to today and what's going on with these current judicial proceedings. As I mentioned, these are the result of some protests, sit-in protests that took place in 2013. And essentially what happened here is there was a, a square in kind of Cairo, as a suburb of Cairo, that had a sit-in. It was staged by supporters of Morsi and supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. While he was, as I mentioned earlier, kind of freely elected, he was ousted in a military coup within about a year or so. And there were dozens of protests that were protesting him as well. And this, this sit-in was kind of one of the, one of several, I should mention, that were pro-Morsi. Now, this sit-in that took place in August of 2013 started out fairly peacefully, but violence erupted quickly. And as the security forces stepped in to kind of crack down, there were hundreds of people who were killed. Our estimates are in the neighborhood of the high hundreds. We're talking close to 900 people that were estimated dead because of this particular sit-in protest. And so these mass trial proceedings did, as I mentioned, result in 75 death sentences, 47 to life in prison, as well as hundreds to other types of sentences. You had, I think, 300 and plus, maybe 400 that received at least 10 to 15 years, another 200 or so people who received five years in prison. And so these convictions, which I should mention can be appealed through their judicial system, they could appeal them. And I imagine many of them will be appealed, but this is seen as kind of just the latest chapter in a massive crackdown by the government against any sort of critics of the government. Since Mohamed Morsi was ousted, authorities in Egypt have thrown in jail thousands of protesters. And on top of that, too, have really enforced a much stricter control over things like civil society, non-governmental groups, uh, the media as well. There were a lot of these freedoms that were kind of won during the Arab Spring uprising that were you know, freedom of the press and these type of things, but have really been rolled back to what they were prior to this, much more authoritarian in nature. So the question becomes, well, what exactly happened with this protest? How did so many people die? I mean, that's a massive number of people. Now, the government has claimed that many of these protesters were armed and that many of them were, many of the police were actually killed by the protesters. Initially, they claimed it was something like 40. That number has since been scaled back into the single digits, about eight or nine, I believe, they claim were killed. They've also declared that the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization, which is actually a sentiment that is shared by other countries as well, including Bahrain, Russia, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Now, I could do probably an entire episode on who the Muslim Brotherhood is and some of their history, but just for a few basics, they are a Sunni Islamist organization. If you remember back when I was talking about the Syrian civil war, we talked a little bit about the differences between Shia and Sunni. So they are Sunni. They were founded in Egypt back in the 1920s. So this is a group that's been around almost 100 years right now. 
And for a long time, they had supporters throughout the Arab world. In fact, Saudi Arabia was one of their primary supporters for a long time. But now the primary state backers are mostly Turkey and Qatar. And the Muslim Brotherhood is mostly probably well known for some of its social movements, political activism, but they also have this reputation of being terrorists themselves. In fact, the United States at one point had suspended all communication with the group because of suspected terrorist activity. But when they gained power in that revolution in 2011, the United States reopened any sort of formal diplomatic channels with that group. Now, the group is quite large, and because of this, it has done a lot of other things too. It's known for teaching people how to read. It's helped set up hospitals, helped set up businesses. And at least nominally on the surface, they claim that they are peaceful, democratic, but they have also been involved in quite a bit of violence over the years and have been accused of anything from assassination attempts to car bombs. Now, because the organization is so large, it's quite possible that you can find both types of members within them. Some members who are much more pro-freedom, pro-democracy, but also members who are quite violent and encouraging of terrorism, especially in certain regions. Uh, Qatar in particular, Qatar-based Muslim Brotherhood members are, have been widely suspected of carrying out car bombings and other types of terrorist activities. And the Brotherhood absolutely has not helped their case by commemorating anniversaries of deaths of jihadi leaders, uh, claiming that they want to raise the flag of jihad mourning the deaths of convicted terrorists. There was a man by the name of Omar Abdel Rahman, who was a convicted terrorist, and he received condolences from the Muslim Brotherhood on one of the Turkish-based kind of satellite TV stations that some Brotherhood member or Brotherhood supporters run, referencing Rahman as a martyr, claiming it was a martyrdom and mourning his death. So there's a lot of disagreement, even within the Arab world, about who this organization really is and what they stand for. But even if you're one of their more peaceful supporters who claims that the organization is simply pro-democracy and misunderstood, violence does seem to follow them wherever they go. And these type of clashes with the military and with the government are not uncommon. As I mentioned, this is not the first time that we've seen some sort of mass trial with mass sentencing that's taken place. But in particular with this protest, this seems to be a case where potentially both sides are to blame to an extent. The Egyptian authorities have never, to our knowledge, questioned or prosecuted or talked to any of the security force personnel who were involved in the clash that also resulted in so many deaths. And so groups like Amnesty International have pointed this out. And while you know, thousands of people have been arrested since this time period, the security forces who got involved have largely escaped any sort of ramifications or punishment for their involvement. And of course, these type of mass sentencings have really run afoul of a lot of the human rights organizations and groups that have, take, have taken up this case as their cause, especially because some of those detained don't seem to really have anything to do with the violence itself. I mean, one of the arrested members was actually a man, he was a photojournalist, award-winning photojournalist, I should mention, and he was actually detained because he was taking pictures of the protest when, as it was dispersing. And he was held in prison, he has been ever since, and so he is one of those people who has been in jail ever since these 2013 clashes, on the surface it looks like, for just taking photographs which certainly runs afoul of a lot of human rights issues with freedom of the press and freedom of journalism and those type of things. A lot of human rights groups have basically called this trial massively unfair and in violation of Egypt's stated constitution. 
Now, what's going to happen next is that these people who have been sentenced, their cases all get referred to the Grand Mufti. The Grand Mufti is the country Egypt's highest legal authority, as say, Islamic legal authority. And Egyptian law requires that you get the opinion of this Grand Mufti. Now, this opinion is not binding, but it is very rarely ignored. And so a lot of these sentences will depend on what he says. And he'll be consulted on whether the death penalty is appropriate in these cases, and we'll have to kind of wait and see. Now, because many of those sentenced received sentences of five years or less, including actually this photojournalist, they are likely to walk free now because they've essentially spent five years in jail pending this trial. And so they're probably going to be let free, essentially having already done time served. But the fate of these longer sentences is something that we'll have to kind of wait and see. On the international stage, though, this has some pretty heavy ramifications. It's been claimed that the Egyptian security forces' role in this essentially amounted to a crime against humanity, with, as I mentioned, close to 900 people dying in the clash. And so there may be international law ramifications. Now, if you're familiar with, with me at all, you know I'm not big on the actual strength and power of these type of international legal groups or legal organizations. But in theory, there could be some sort of international penalty levied if it's actually deemed that this was something akin to a crime against humanity or whatnot. I would not personally expect that, but it is certainly possible. All of that said, however, I think this is a situation and an event that we need to be well aware of here in the United States, as well as just as members of the international community. Because if we as Americans and as you know, members of the human race claim to be for justice and, and those sorts of things, we need to be very aware of when injustice is taking place. Regardless of the scenario, as I mentioned, this is a, probably a case where both sides were to blame for some of these deaths, but these mass trials are, are kind of a farce and a mockery of the criminal justice system. And I think it's kind of a good example of this famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote, where he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And America has been on kind of the front lines of fighting injustice on the global stage pretty much ever since our founding. It was one of our, our founding principles. And so it's really important that at least bare minimum, we're aware of what's going on and continue to be aware going forward. But with that, I think we're at the end of the episode. So I really appreciate you guys tuning in and listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I would really appreciate it if you guys would spread the word about this podcast. Tell your friends, tell your family. If you're interested in connecting with me and continuing the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. I'm always happy to answer questions there to talk about international relations and politics. You can also find me on Facebook. I have a fiction author page, J. Robert Kinney. I have a fiction novel, Precipice, that's on Amazon right now, a second book which should be coming out sometime this fall. And if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, advertising on the podcast, please get in contact with me. I would be happy to talk with you about that possibility, connect you with my brand new Patreon account, or simply thank you for being a loyal listener, because I really appreciate that. And I, I really couldn't do this without you guys. So thank you so much. And until next time, in the next episode, this is Nutshell Politics. I'm Justin Kinney, and I'm out in three, two, one. Yeah.